Welcome. This is Coppercast, a brand new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. We're joined today by Copper's very own CEO, Dmitry Tokarev, and by Charlie Morris, the founder and CIO of Bytree.com. Charlie was born in the north of England, but grew up internationally with parents who moved the family to Hong Kong at an early age. There he received his primary education, but his heart always remained in England, and so he returned to board and later attend university. Upon graduating, he joined the British Army and served as an officer in the Grenadier Guards, a regiment with a long and storied history dating back to 1656. In 1998, after completing his military service, Charlie joined the city brokerage firm James Cable, which would later be acquired by HSBC and where he would spend 17 years of his career as a multi-asset fund manager. As an active fund manager, his interests were diverse, but focused on commodities and frontier markets. Then in 2015, he took a step back from it all, perhaps because something more interesting had come along. Welcome, Charlie. I guess my first question would be, what got you into crypto? For me, um, 2011, a friend of mine who was an economist, a um, bit of an alternative economist, said, said I, I bought some ganger on the internet using this thing called Bitcoin. And, um, and, and I said, don't be ridiculous because you can't have internet money because you can cut and paste it and have two monies and three monies. And of course, I was wrong. The joke was on me. And once I realized I was wrong in 2013, I started to read more about this and started to follow it more closely. I saw the error of my ways about 100 times later and, um, and recognized that this was amazing. You know, this idea of a blockchain means you can't copy it and therefore you can have online value. And the internet succeeded at everything it's ever done. And therefore, it's going to concede here. So it's kind of an unstoppable force. Dimitri, I have to assume as the, the CEO of, of the company I work for that you did not find out about Bitcoin via ganja purchases on the internet. No, actually, I was, I was a quant in a hedge fund um, at the time when I heard about Bitcoin, actually, because a friend of mine was doing uh, arbitrage between exchanges. And um, I was trading, you know, equities, ETFs. And uh, when he told me what he's trading, I said, man, get real, st- stop doing that, trade real assets. And um, so my, in a much similar fashion, dismissed it at first. Um, it was only later in my career when I realized on what kind of rails uh, we're sitting in the financial services sector. Um, it came to me that, you know, to have the most secure decentralized database in the world can actually change a lot of things. Um, and if there is a possibility to have money on it as well and exchange that, um, that's definitely not never going to go away. So uh, that's when I made the decision to, to switch full time as well. So you guys are you guys were both working in sort of traditional finance roles. Um, you know, Bitcoin appears in, in your periphery, and and you're dismissing it probably out of some maybe loyalty to traditional markets in your own training and education. Um, one of the things that people always talk about is that it's an uncorrelated asset. But I know Charlie in your in your show and tell segment that, that you shared with us earlier, and if you haven't seen that, you can find it on our on our YouTube channel. Um, you know, there are times where it looks very much like there's a direct correlation. Um, and maybe it's not with the S&P 500, maybe it's with, you know, s- specific, you know, subset. And I think you, you shared with us the, the tech stocks or the, the social media stocks. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you, you know, discovered, you know, this correlation or, or what you think about this correlation now? Yeah, I mean, the idea that Bitcoin lives in its own um, bubble and, um, and does its own thing and ignores the final system is absolutely wrong. And it's, it's, it's clear to me that it, it does respond to central bank liquidity, hasn't done this year, we're in 2020, we're waiting for the big breakout. But you know, normally when the, when the central banks in aggregate contract and they have tight conditions, you've seen the price weak, um, uh, weaken, uh, uh, and, and when the central banks have stepped in, um, you've seen the price surge. So, you know, when the, when, the, when the banks are printing, 
everyone gets a bit. And it only takes the marginal dollar to send Bitcoin much higher. So we are waiting for something big to happen there. And I would say that it is linked to the system. But most people would think it's, it's linked to gold in some way. I mean, yes, the design around the supply side, of course, but it's a demand asset. And interestingly, I think it's more opposite to gold than, than in sync with gold. And I think that if you own gold and Bitcoin together, you've got a more robust strategy than you've got one or the other because they, because they have negative correlation at times. So if people, if people are waiting for, you know, something big to happen, is it, you know, is it more likely to come from, you know, the, the traditional side, the central banks, or is it, you know, could it come from the digital side, from, from Bitcoin itself? Well, the demand side can come from the innovation. So if the network grows, if more people start um, using Bitcoin for whatever reason, and we find more purpose for it than we currently, there is good purpose for it. But if we find more purpose, more application, then Bitcoin um, as a stock can go up because it's a good stock, if you know what I mean. Um, but the macro um, environment for it really is, is very much a risk on asset, you know, the, the printing, the general tide of markets in general. So if you're, if you've got um, stock markets buoyant and everything, then expect Bitcoin to do well. If, if the tide's going out, expect that to be a headwind for Bitcoin. But yes, of course, the, the network can, um, can outperform reality. And when it does, then expect it to make money through thick and thin. And I guess that's, that's Bitcoin itself as an asset. But you know, the, the technology underlying is, you know, the blockchain, and there are applications for that outside of just bitcoin you know there's applications for financial services more widely i know dimitri you talk a lot about how you know the improvements from blockchain um in financial services you know the cost reductions alone for asset managers would be huge is that something that could be you know the driving force for adoption that um, leaks over into bitcoin as an asset you know if, if blockchain technology as itself becomes adopted more widely and it's shown its value yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you prove that the rails can be used for financial assets, you know, then you know you would associate Bitcoin as being one of the assets um, which which is sitting on, on on the rails. But in it's it's you know even for crypto native crew, sometimes it's hard to understand what's the value there because I remember it was on one of the panels at some point, and the host said, "Well, who cares that the banks are going to save." some money basically uh you know and as a matter of fact like it's not the banks that are paying for it it's you know the end consumer and um the any friction in in infrastructure creates also opportunities to um basically you know hide fees uh create um unfair uh, advantages um etc and um the reason the, the fundamental reason what blockchain solves because you know we've been hearing quite a lot that, you know, blockchain is going to save the world in the last two, three years. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of people are really tired of hearing that uh, because, well, it takes time to build. But in reality, what's, what's happening still today is that you've got thousands and thousands of centralized databases which need to sync up with each other 24-7, 365. And without having a blockchain, basically, or without having a solution where there could be a decentralized database where you can't put fraudulent entries or double entries or you know, things of that nature, um, it's impossible to get rid of such structure, and blockchain provides that. So when you currently buy bonds, equities, uh, structured products, whatever it is, you use the rails where it sells T plus one, T plus two, you send messages over Swift, which, you know, in good portion of cases, well, you know, like in a few percent probably end up with, you know, missed comma or some other thing like that where it just gets stuck. And um, people manually have to move you know, papers from uh, left to right, uh, receive faxes, send faxes. 
So yeah, uh, that's definitely- can, I, can I just come in on that point? You know, my, my history in fund management, this happens not just a bit, but all the time. You know, you have simple trades sometimes and they just don't settle and they just sort of uh, yep. go round and round in circles. And, and the reason why so many people work in financial services is because of this kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. And, and you know, when people say bankers are rich, well, most aren't. Most people have got a boring job trying to sort out all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess the, like an argument could be made that the, the necessity of having a manual intervention at some point when something's gone wrong, like a mixing, missing comma or whatever message gets stuck, um, that manual intervention will prevent, um, you know, a misplacement of funds. Whereas on the blockchain, if you miss up, mess up an address, uh, th- those funds are going and they're never coming back. Yeah. Well, it depends how the system is built. If the, the system that we're currently operating is not mathematically proven, there's a lot of room for error everywhere, you know, manual entries. So garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you basically do not have robust entry point, then you, you, you can expect always something to uh, kind of come out as not in the way that you expected. When it comes to, um, in the pure form, of course, you know, the transaction generation and everything, um, uh, the way it's been done, kind of like pre-institutional market. Um, of course, there is so much room for error, fat fingers, etc. More and more solutions are coming to the market, uh, which prevent that, which allow you to basically double check, triple check, etc. And um, it's it's it, it, it's getting there. So uh, that's not the most kind of um, stumbling, the biggest stumbling block, I would say, uh, for, for 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 the sector, uh, you know, to, to develop. So Charlie, in your role at Bytree, you look at other assets other than Bitcoin, obviously. Um, what kind of fundamentals are you using to evaluate them that might be useful for everyone to? understand better yeah so on Bytree, we're basically measuring um the most important thing is measuring the network as i said earlier you know if, you, if, if more money transfers across the bitcoin network then quite simply it's more it makes bitcoin more valuable so measuring that is simple you can do that by counting transactions you can do that by um, counting size of transactions you're looking at the types of transactions um, you can study the fees you can study the velocity of the network so that's how quickly coins move around you know and i think there's a there's an interesting point there because a lot of people would think that hodl creates value and i've heard a lot of people say that you, know, you scoop up all the coins tighten the market and that will make bitcoin more valuable i 100 percent disagree with that I think a vibrant network is a valuable network, not a stagnant network. And so, you know, if we all go and buy, I mean, let me give you an example, right? If, if let's say I had billions of dollars, I can buy Coca-Cola. That would be great. I can pass it down to my grandchildren. It's a company that's probably going to stand the test of time for the next hundred years. Love to do that. Yeah. If I had a similar amount of money, I could buy all the Bitcoins in the world. How dumb would that be? How dumb? Totally dumb. Because if I have got no one to transact with, then Bitcoin is worthless. Therefore, you know, it's actually having the perfect distributed network, as many people involved as possible, with some having a few more than others. That is how you maximize the value of the system. And, um, and so, you know, these are important points that I think, you know, you can't take over. You can't do a takeover. This is not a company. Um, you know, if, you put, or if I own, if to, to own all the gold in the world, that would be great. You'd all be jealous. But when all the Bitcoin in the world would make me look really stupid because it would be worth There's it. a lot of competition then between, you know, the, the top crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, whatever they're out there at the moment, you know, the top five. Um, do you get a sense of which one's going to stand the test of time, like Coca-Cola? Um, well, there's basically Bitcoin, and then there's another five, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, that's the crypto market, and Bitcoin remains massively dominant. On a actually interesting interesting point on the um, velocity and uh, you know transactions on the, on the network, um, I was wondering how would that logic then be applied to gold? You know, so obviously, if you own all the gold in the world, 
um, similar situation. So, um, or it's not similar situation in your in your mind. How do you compare those two? Well, I think if I owned all the gold in the world, it probably wouldn't be a very liquid market to sell into. <laughs> That's for sure. I joke a bit, but the but I think it would still be a desirable asset. You know, I mean, people would still want to wear it, and you know, Italian men in particular. But again, some of the other assets that we're talking about in the digital space, though, have um, you know a different utility. It's not just transactional, like you know, the smart contracts, for instance. Does that make them? more likely to succeed in mass adoption adoption or is it does it make it more likely that they you know diverge and become their own thing altogether with value but not like a currency well, well my vision for this space is a bit like the nasdaq in the 90s you know you're throwing loads of balls up in the air and see what lands and bitcoin is the go-to so in the same way, way if you want to go to the world economy you go via the us dollar so if i want to switch pounds for um, Philippine pesos, I, I switch my pounds into dollars and my dollars into Philippine peso. There's no big liquid market between Britain and the Philippines, right? And, and, and so that's how the system works. And if you want to switch from Ethereum, um, you know, to some token, then you, then you go via Bitcoin. And, 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 and so that position is a very privileged position. And Bitcoin doesn't actually need to have much utility, provided it can maintain that, that role. And then, and then all the good stuff can trickle down. So all the good ideas of, you know, we use this one to store photographs and that one to, you know, buy concert tickets or whatever the hell it is, um, or Brave Browser and all these things. They, they, they can all be, um, um, you know, tokens or, or, or real assets that, you know, we, we have the vision that one day all shares and bonds and assets in general will, um, will sit on this platform because it's more efficient. You know, at the moment, if you want to sh trade shares, it's, you know, T plus three or T plus two in some countries, T plus four in some countries. Here it's T plus now. Um, and it's more secure. And then you take a whole layer of fees. So, you know, it's, it's, it's coming. It's just a question of how, when, why. So just to be clear, like, when we talk about network value, right, and uh, by the way, super fascinating methodology and uh, very unique uh, on the market as well. So I'm very curious to kind of uh, understand the, the variables there. Um it's not about transactions in a sense that like the number of blockchain transactions, just just blockchain transactions. It's also about financial transactions you basically conducted using using Bitcoin. So if you basically go into Bitcoin and use it to purchase something, that's what you mean as well, right? Yeah, I think I mean I I, I don't know exactly whether certain transactions are more valuable in terms of network value than others. Um, because we, we, we don't know enough about Bitcoin yet. Maybe in five years' time, we'll ask me again and we'll, we'll be able to, to, to say something about that. I don't know if large transactions are more valuable than small transactions. You know, is, is, a, is a million $1 transactions, are they more valuable to the network or one, one million dollar transaction? I don't know. I'm guessing the smaller ones, lots of the smaller ones, I would think, would, would, be, would be more valuable. Certainly, the, the early evidence we've got suggests that. Um, and of course, you know, some of the billion dollar moves are, are fake traffic. Well, um, what do you think about this? infrastructure blockchains, like infrastructure plays, like such as, you know, Ethereum, Tezos, EOS, Stellar, etc. So they're not positioning themselves as the we're basically a value, you know, uh, the, the position themselves is our basically rails are the value and you can build, and I guess this is to Tyler's question about smart contracts. Um, is there a, like a one winner, one winner takes it all, do you think? Or are there are different I applications? Think so. I, I think there's, there's plenty of room in this space. Yeah. I mean, my dream five, six years ago was was that there would be a world of 50,000 blockchains, you know, 50,000 useful blockchains. And I don't really know what's going to happen on them, but that was just the vision. Mm. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll let the creative ones tell me where it's, it's going. a lot of nodes to run. I think Amazon Web well, Servers will be very that, happy that's, if that's That's why I built Bytree, and that's, that's what I'm hoping to do. I want to run a lot of nodes 
for a lot of decent coins. I'm not going to run, um, um, you know, these sort of pointless ones, you know, Max Kaiser coin and and Kenya Yes coin and West <laughs> coin and stuff like that. But you know, if it's got a real value and there's something there, then then we'll run it. And I don't know if we're going to a world of fifty thousand or or one hundred or or five. I have no idea. Um, but it strikes me that there's plenty of potential to do a lot of different things on a lot of different networks. Would it help if, um, you know, digital assets became securities more widely? You know, instead of IPOing, people had an STO. I mean, surely that would help drive your 50,000 blockchains that would come out there because they would all probably live on their own native blockchain. Yeah. I mean, on that, let me just take it back a stage further. Um, I, as I said, I've been in the in this in the city, um, which for the financial services industry, fund management, call it what you will, for twenty plus years. And over that time, and this is true in Britain, in Europe, and in America, there are half the number of listed stocks than there were then. So that's progress in the last twenty years, the last two decades. Half the stocks have found somewhere better to go. Some of that's gone to private, some bankruptcy, obviously, there's greater destruction at work. Many to private equity. The good ones, many of the good ones, went to private equity, and some bad ones. Um, but but really, it's because in creative destruction, you've got to have new supply all the time, and the new supply is not coming. Um, private equity is very greedy. You know, the venture capitalists they they don't float these things young, young anymore. They float them mature, like we've seen with all the Silicon Valley floats um, in recent years. But more importantly, it's just too expensive, and the regulation is too tough. And so this world is 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 you know much easier to be creative in than the old world. And if you if you were Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, um, or these sort of people and you were sort of 17, 18, about to drop out of college, what are you going to do? Are you going to tap the stock market, or are you going to tap this place? You're going to come straight to this space. I mean, it's interesting then that, you know, the the rumor mill is rife with Coinbase, you know, talking about or plans to do an IPO, and, you know, people suspect it'll be uh, on NASDAQ. So why, I mean, you'd think they're, they're held up as a paragon in this industry of, you know, the people who got it right in the beginning, and they're doing a really great job, you know, would it do more for the adoption of blockchains and, and crypto assets if they did an STO and they steered completely clear of public listings on stock exchanges? Well, I suppose if if you're if you know if you want to be a billionaire, then a real billionaire has a real billion, and <laughs> and uh, not such a real billionaire has such not not such a real billion. You know, if you want to buy houses and big boats, it's it's still quite hard to you know swap some tokens for these things. Mm-hmm. I know it's happened in certain cases, but. Generally speaking, it's not the norm. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, also, I mean, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, transactions before. And when we, talk, when we look at whether people are using Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee or whatever, do we need to stop thinking about Bitcoin buying a cup of coffee because no one spends 9000 on a, a cup of we, coffee? And we need to think about that. We did that years ago, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. I yep. think we gave up on the cup of coffee thing in about 2015. I mean, the most stupid thing ever was the word cryptocurrency because it's not a currency. It's an asset. And as soon as you've got your head around that idea that it's an asset, not a currency, like most things are, then um, that it all makes sense. A currency is issued by a country, and the useful thing about a, cur- a currency is that it has zero volatility in its country. So if you are, um, are, are French and you have euros, unfortunately for them they should have francs, but they've got euros, and, and, you, and you buy a cup of coffee, you know that that cup of coffee is not going to cha- change in price much over the next few weeks, months possibly years, yeah, in a low inflation environment. If you're in Venezuela, then then maybe maybe you're going to pay a lot more for that coffee next week. Um, and somewhere in between Turkey, you're going to pay more next year than this year, when you're somewhere in the middle. But basically, 
you know, if you provide it's not Venezuela, provide your Turkey or France or wherever else, it doesn't really, you know, a little bit of inflation doesn't really matter because you're basically, basically you trust the money in the short term. Um, and and if the if inflation is low like it is in the developed world, then you know, then you trust the money in the short and the medium term, but not the long term because we know in the long term it's terrible. So which is why we buy assets. Yeah. So Bitcoin is is going to do well over the long term, very very highly, very very likely, and um, money is going to do very badly over the long term, very very likely. Um, one of the things we didn't touch on in your show and tell, but. Uh, maybe could have in the, in the next one is our current state and it's very topical we're you know at the black swan event in march it's a pandemic globally we're recording this in london socially distanced of course um but what kind of effect do you think that'll have on adoption or on the value of the assets uh, sorry of crypto yeah um i don't know i mean it's been a, it's been a win for the internet i mean i don't know who owns the internet but probably spectre and um you know, they'd be the sort of people that would own the internet, wouldn't they? And and you can see how they they invented COVID to you know, make, make us use the internet <laughs> yeah. more, and that would make that would be a good plot for a Bond film. And um, I would think that more internet would mean would be would be good for for this space in general. But I would think that the liquidity cycle is probably even more important. You know, a risk on world tech doing well and all the rest of it. It's actually surprising how weak Bitcoin is this year compared to asset class in general particularly the last couple of months mm. um you know it was, a, it was a nasty shock but it was a, it was a good start to the year january and february were great yeah and then there was a nasty shock a good recovery um but then but then we sort of gone to sleep since which is probably good it means we're not tesla and, I, <laughs> and i'm happy about that what do you think will happen like with um with the amount of money that's you know already been printed uh, in the states and uh, about to be printed the current stimulus the several yeah, exactly. trillion exactly so what sort of effects do you think this would have on on bitcoin and other crypto assets you know in line with what you know Paul Tudor Jones you know been saying as well i think it's not. just for some reason there's a delay for it coming to crypto you know it's gone everywhere else we're seeing um you know commodities break out big time and um the the any the only parts of the market that are, that are doing badly are, are the obvious ones you know transport and leisure no one's moving and no one's playing and um and, and so therefore that that is the real drought out there but there's no reason for crypto to be a drought and the and the on-chain metrics that we study are, are upbeat you know they're not super bullish but they're upbeat and um and, and so we're very comfortable with what's going on i think that the biggest problem with bitcoin this year is is goddamn halving goddamn halving and the goddamn hype from the thick people, the really stupid people who honestly believe that it's a value creation exercise. And it's, it's, it's just beyond belief that, you know, if, if you, no, no one sort of says, oh, inflation fell in Switzerland, let's charge out and speculate on the Swiss franc, you know? Mm. No one in the gold market ever for a second says, oh, um, the mines have shut down, therefore gold's going to go up. It's just, you know, this is, this is not a thing. Right, it might be true in natural gas where where there's a tight market, but in something like gold where there's plenty of supply, like there is in Bitcoin because there's lots of it out there already, then you know this is the market where uh, supply disruption means nothing. And um, I just I just find it extraordinary. So a lot of people came in and bought Bitcoin expecting to double their money in the short space of time, and they've been disappointed. So I think that it, it, it's you know when, so Bitcoin's been disappointing since when? Since mid May, right? which is when halving was. 
So I think we've just got to flush out the people, you know, the halving tourists who came into the market who have just got you. That's probably the number one reason. I mean, it's a good lesson in uh, past performance doesn't indicate future success. There was coincidence in all that. Actually, if you go back to the 2012 halving, um, which was unhyped, um, it just sort of behaved normally. In 16, there was a bit of pre-hype, but but they went back to trend. You know, I think we probably did too well late last year, early this year, um, it, it, with the halving tourists. And, um, and, you know, when the last one leaves, then we'll you know, get back to business. So, you know, I'm very, very really bullish, but it really upsets me when you get these stupid narratives that the majority believe. You know, even clever people come to me and say, ooh, this arbing thing, you know? I mean, please, you can't, you can't possibly add value. I'll give you a final example, okay? So we're sitting in Mayfair right now. There are um, auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's. Imagine we own a collection of, uh, of Monet's, yeah? Let's say we've got 100 Monet's, the best collection. Of Lucky the us. Lucky us, right? Let's double our money. Let's start burning them. <laughs> Why don't we burn half our, our collection? Come on, surely less of them, right? What do you think? You've got a hundred monets. I think you've just surely we make more money. money. Well, no, because they're, they're going to go up in value because there's fewer of them. I'll be honest, I'll, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if it were true, everyone would be burning monets, right? <laughs> yeah. Most certainly not me. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, it's not true. But you know, like on that, on that note, you know, and um, this is the argument that I've heard. And, um, w- you know, I haven't been digging in the network value and, you know, how the price of Bitcoin has been, uh, you know, reflected in terms of like um, what's been happening with the supply. But it's the miners, you know, like, uh, and I don't know what, 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 what currently is the break even for miners. Uh, but the argument there was that since halving, essentially that break even point is going to be now higher. Therefore, if it's then going to go down, Below that break-even point, miners would stop selling and therefore, you know, put the price pressure essentially because, you know, supply is going to be reduced, demand uh, is going to remain, for example. So that's the argument which, you know, it would make probably sense if there was a break-even point at $10,000 where Bitcoin was because then, you know, if you half your rewards or sort of half because obviously there are network fees, etc., then you would unplug your, um, you know, I, I, two, two, two things could, could, could basically restore the equilibrium, right? It's either the network difficulty is going to drop or the price is going to have to increase. So that's, that, the, that's the narrative that I've heard. Uh, what do you think about that? Does that make any sense to you? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, difficulty is a technical chain um, adjustment to make sure that the system works. So it doesn't really matter what happens. You know, if loads of the miners come into the market or loads of miners leave the market, the system will work because you've got a mechanism to adjust for that. Um, we actually track the miners, and they, their 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 um, their traffic is you know their, their their sales selling pressure is about the same as it was before halving, mm. and so they're just you know. But but the other point about about their fees, and I'm not really I'm not really an expert on on cost of mining. Um, uh, that's not something I've really got involved in. So so I'll just skip that one. But I will say that. Of their of, of miners' revenue, twenty um, percent is now fees. So mm. actually, you know that that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. That, that's high. It yeah. was so. So the dip in their revenue is not nearly as big as you think. And you know we are talking about nine thousand dollar Bitcoin here. You're not talking about one thousand dollar Bitcoin or mm. you know they're, they're big numbers. They're still big numbers. Yeah, I guess and it was enough for. I mean, Fidelity took a stake in Hut Eight last week. I think right. They took ten percent stake in that mining outfit. Mm. So I mean. There's still value there. We love fidelity. That's the they're the old world, you know, <laughs> showing uh, the rest of the earth, shaming the old world, showing how it should be done. <laughs> well done, them. 
I don't think I don't I don't think uh, um, they were the only ones who tried. I think many tried. They are the only ones who were um, successful at uh, you know bringing the product to the market, which is massive respect to them for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's privately owned companies, family owned. You know, none of this nonsense with the with the listing and the requirements and well, the true. But you know, you've got thousands of employees and you got committee about committee. It's very very hard to build any innovative uh, innovative product uh, with firms uh, of that size. So, in whatever shape or form the product comes out, it's always um, you know, admirable to see that because, you know, I've been in financial technologies throughout my whole career and seen the numbers to go as high as 500 million pounds per project, basically, <laughs> been literally burned uh, over the course of like four or five years with zero results to show for it. And it's not not unheard of, you know, we, we've seen also, you know, like um, Revolut copies uh, that try to go to the market with like, you know, budgets of 200, 300 million and also failing. Um, so um, when a large corporation, regardless whether, you know, private, of course, you know, public will create much more um, kind of obligations in terms of reporting, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's still, still great to see uh, when something like this happens. Just thinking about those resale fintechs you mentioned quickly, some of them have tried to integrate cryptocurrencies into their offering. I don't know how successful they've been. Do you think that they could play a larger role in, you know, mass adoption? Uh, well, Revolut quite recently actually stepped away from um, the idea that you can buy and sell only within Revolut. They're starting to allow people to basically send that. Um, the recent uh, article I read, which is, you know, it kind of makes sense because if you own Bitcoin, you should be able to send that Bitcoin. It's not just, you know, otherwise it's a CFD, essentially. Why, why do you even uh, bother um, buying the underlying asset? Uh, but I think that, that well, you know, was played played very well for them, you know, in 2017, acquiring quite a large number of users uh, through a launching service like that. So, but it's it's retail, right? So, retail hype goes uh, in circles. So, oh, in cycles. Sorry, um, you know, at some point, I think is the this is the support team was quite overwhelmed. <laughs> I've heard of the exchange that's been bought uh, for you know a few hundred million. Um, in 2017-18 uh, by a larger uh, firm and they had like 10,000 announced tickets <laughs> and like three employees there. <laughs> um, They're working them, weekends then. <laughs> yeah, it took them like I think seven months just to answer all, all the tickets. So, you know, the retail flow com- comes with, uh, in crypto, it comes with its own kind of responsibilities uh, because you you just, you know, you know can't, can't uh, really uh, account for, 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 for that because, you know, just, cycle arrives you know bitcoin goes through fifteen thousand. like you know see what happens you know had two people uh you know community managers and now all of a sudden you need to have 25 tomorrow like but this time of course if if, if bitcoin does when if when bitcoin (laughs) uh roosted again then um you know an all-time high is always a buy as the saying goes but there's quite a lot of etps out there now and so i think retail can go to them and, you know, Bitcoin hasn't been banned yet. And, and the FCA talked about, you know, regulating these ETPs and banning them and stuff. They didn't do it. Um, so therefore, they're not illegal. They're legal. Yeah. It'd be nice if someone told us that they were legal, but they're, yeah. they're not illegal. Well, cur- steps. The, the current setup is basically the MLD5, uh, basically, registration is a way of regulating, basically, crypto without regulating crypto. So you have you 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 you're responsible. If anything goes wrong, you're responsible, but you don't have 
And there's a requirement now from the FCA, for UK operated companies at least, to have that MLD5 registration. Yeah. It yeah. actually created a barrier to entry to certain places because if you haven't been in a crypto business before January 2020, essentially you just cannot cannot be in one uh, without uh, filing a registration with the FCA and getting approval. So, um, And I think the deadline for the MLD5 is in um, yeah, January 21. Yeah. So it smells smells like progress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about it for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the in the regulators' kind of timeline, that's nothing. Yeah, of course. Two years is, yeah. Um, Charlie, just to wrap things up here uh, this afternoon, we've got a couple of questions that we ask every guest, um, or we'll ask every guest, as this is episode one. Um, so we'll just run through those quickly, if you don't mind. So the first one is, where do you see the crypto industry in one year versus 10 years? Um, the industry, I think, is going to be more credible. And in 10 years, I think people like us will have been forgotten and, and, and all the, um, you know, everyone would have claimed it was their idea and they'll all be all over it and it'll be a normal part of life. Okay. And if you could change one thing about the industry, what would it be? Uh, the word cryptocurrency. I'd get rid of the word currency. Just call it crypto? Yeah, maybe. Or just digital assets. Okay. Uh, in your life, what is one piece of technology you couldn't live without? Oh gosh, that's sort of I, you know that's the sort of thing I wish you'd told me earlier because I had a train journey to come here. Um, I guess I'm addicted to my phone. That's what my kids would say. Fair enough. I think that's probably we're all guilty of that. Um, what does your weekend look like? You know, w- when you get time off, what what are you doing? Uh, walking, boating, playing with kids. Okay. Um, what movie can you watch over and over again and never get tired of? Oh, The Castle. Uh, James Gandolfini is that his last film? Uh, it's, no, The Castle's. Um, an Australian film. Okay. It's about a family who, who live at the end of a runway. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just hilarious. It's probably one of the funniest films ever made, and it deserves cult status. Is that, is that the one? Uh, one of the lines from the movie is, that's going straight to the pool room? Is that going straight to the pool room. <laughs> okay. I guess my next question was, what catchphrase do you live by? I'm hoping it's not that one. Um, oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you don't have to have one, by the way. It doesn't have yeah, to be I, like... I, think uh, I really do catchphrases. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Uh, at Atlas Pulse. That's me. Yeah. And any top recommendations for people you follow? Um, um, yeah. Everyone I follow is good. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was the last thing that surprised you? Um, Other than this question. Your office. It was quite it was much smarter than I thought it would be. And it's also, it's next to the Saudi embassy, which is, you know, I always wanted to, whenever I come to the Saudi embassy. Don't tell embassy, people where we are. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I think we'll end it there. Thank you very much for your time, Charlie. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Dimitri. And to our listeners, if you haven't already followed us, give us a subscribe on at Copper HQ. I think that's actually all the time we have this afternoon. Charlie, you've been a wonderful guest. If you haven't already seen Charlie's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter or on our website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, subscribe there. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. The show is made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown, with support from Maylee Mountford and Eva Lila. New episodes come out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.